This presentation is from Design Research 2021, Day 2. So our next presentation comes from Laura Ryan. Um, this is a, 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 a change of pace, a, a palate cleanser before the um, morning tea break, if you, if you will. Um, Laura's going to be talking to us about the role of um, being a design researcher in creating a wellbeing economy. Um, hello, Laura. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Um, I was actually feeling really, really relaxed about this entire encounter about five minutes ago until my internet had a had a small <laughs> glitch, but it wouldn't be a remote conference if we didn't have a couple of those along the way. Absolutely not, no. Um, before I get started, um, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners um, of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, so good morning, everyone, um, and thanks for having me along today. My name's Laura. Um, I'm a partner and the head of strategy team at Future Friendly until quite recently known as Mentally Friendly. Um, I'm going to be sharing my thoughts with you on the role of the design researcher in creating a wellbeing economy um, today. So, yeah, let's get started. Um, there's three questions I'd like um, to discuss or even attempt to answer today, um, and they are, one, what is a wellbeing economy? Um, seems like a reasonable place to start, given the title of my talk. Um, why should I care about a wellbeing economy as a design researcher? And then finally, what's the role of design research in augmenting products and services for a wellbeing economy? Bit of a mouthful, that last one, but it's building blocks, so hopefully we'll get there in the end. So let's start off with what is a wellbeing economy? So <clears throat> this is Senator Robert Kennedy at the University of Kansas in 1968, where he gave a remarkable speech. Um, and it was a remarkable speech because he makes one of the earliest critiques of financial growth as a measurement of social progress. And amongst many inspiring points, he says, our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. In short, it measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. And there's two things that really strike me about this speech. One is its incredible farsightedness. So this speech was given in 1968 and at that time Robert Kennedy was really able to predict and articulate 
the incredible sort of iceberg that we were colliding with, which is that if we continue to measure progress on financial growth alone, then we really continue to ignore the categories of progress that are important to us as human beings. So in other words, it sort of permits us to act in quite unconscionable ways in other spheres that we need to be accountable for. The second thing that strikes me about his eloquent expression of what we should be measuring is that it wasn't called a well-being economy at the time, but that's exactly what he's describing. He's really describing the need to take a holistic and human approach to measuring progress and outcomes. So a well-being economy is basically one that takes a convergence of factors, education, mental health, equality, sustainability, and it measures those things so that we can sustainably improve well-being. So I guess the question on everyone's mind now is why should I care about a well-being economy as a design researcher? This is obviously a, a very, um, you know, sort of big definition um, and, and surely something that everybody needs to be working towards. And that's true, but I think as design researchers, we also have a really critical role to play. And that's because quite simply, products and services are the way that we interact with the design world around us. <clears throat> and the design world is having a really profound effect on our well-being. So our interactions with banks, the education system, energy providers, superannuation, all of these services which are really necessary for us to engage in a modern world are being researched and designed by people like you and I. And whether we choose to or not, as designers, as researchers, we really are impacting people's well-being. And if these services aren't designed with well-being outcomes in mind, no matter how well-intentioned we are, we do risk negatively impacting people's lives. So we need to be conscious as researchers about what impact our actions have and we need to understand the active role that we have to play in that process. I'd like you to think for a moment about this question. Have you ever been in a testing session or an interview in which someone's asked for something that you felt would deliver negative outcomes? I'd like to share an experience of my own. So recently I've spent a lot of time working in insurance, finance and superannuation products. On this one particular project, I was working in superannuation and we had a desired outcome to improve people's literacy of superannuation. And amongst many, many, many assumptions, uh, all documented as a good re researcher does, um, we had one that I wanted to share with you today. And that assumption was that interacting with your superannuation would build literacy. And that kind of makes sense really because 
Superannuation is a relatively complex subject matter. Sure, it's automatic um, and seamless, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people really understand it. So the thinking here is that we can really increase people's comprehension of superannuation if we can get them to interact and engage with it. So then we started talking about what the testable hypotheses would be for this assumption. And again, we had many, but the one I wanted to share with you today was this. If we make it easy for people to interact with their risk profile and investments, then people will understand and describe accurately what actions they're taking. So this test was about making it easy for people to access um, one of the, the key components of a superannuation um, account, which is risk profiles and investments, and to see if in doing so, we were able to improve people's literacy about superannuation generally, um, but also more specifically about their own personal situation. So we went ahead and we prototyped that experience and we put that in front of customers. And this is what we saw play out. People with high financial literacy and high digital capability were able to really confidently make decisions about their risk profile and investments. So they could describe the actions they were taking and the consequences that those actions would have on their superannuation. And you would expect to see that probably with people who have high financial literacy. They were a lower risk category to begin with, but we still wanted to test with them to make sure that the experience that we were designing wasn't going to erode or diminish their existing understanding. On the other hand, people with low financial literacy and high digital capability were able to use the tooling very efficiently, but in doing so, were also able to make decisions about their finances that they didn't really understand the consequences of. We heard one such person say, this is awesome. I can change up my investments on the bus on the way to work. And I guess this is the exact moment in which the principles that I'm about to present come into play. Because as researchers, we really need to be able to spot the significance of that moment. And we also need to be able to answer the question, what is my role here? The participant had reacted really positively to this concept. Their verbatim definitely shows desirability. This is awesome. But what happens to that person with low financial literacy who changes their risk profile from conservative to aggressive to maximise their returns, not understanding that in doing so, they're also going to experience volatility? They want it, sure, but is that actually going to deliver wellbeing outcomes? Many products that have negative impacts on people's lives have followed methods that are human-centred. So how can we go beyond reporting what we've heard to reporting what really matters? The last question I wanted to answer or discuss a little bit further today is what is the role of design research in augmenting products and services for a wellbeing economy? 
I'm going to present three key principles accompanied by some tangible frameworks to implement. The first principle I wanted to talk about is that comprehension comes first. So as researchers, we have an important role to play in discerning between the things that people understand and the things that people value. To deliver wellbeing outcomes, we should be very, very cautious when we see people value a concept that they don't properly understand. When people don't understand what the results of their actions are, it's really impossible for them to actually desire or value that experience. And that gulf between what we intended to communicate and what people understand is really where the danger zone lies. In the example I gave before, the participant really did attribute value to the idea of being able to change their risk profile. But would it have helped us to achieve the outcome of improved financial literacy? And would it have improved that person's life? As researchers, we can improve the products and services we design by being aware of this gulf, by deliberately testing comprehension. Designing experiments that are really intentional about testing people's comprehension before testing their desirability and value attribution is a really good way of doing this. So this is a framework that I use when testing. It starts with testing comprehension. So quite simply, can people clearly articulate the concept and how it's unique? If they can't describe it in the way that it was intended for it to be described and understood, it's really difficult to prove with confidence that the concept is valued and desired by customers and that it can deliver on, and that it can deliver on the desired outcomes. Once you're confident that a concept is well understood, you can move into value attribution. Can people see value in the product and compare it to existing alternatives? And finally, move into desirability. Are people willing to commit time and energy to pursue the concept? Using this framework ensures that we pay attention to whether people understand concepts in the way we intend them to be understood, and it improves our ability to deliver positive outcomes. The second principle today is spot significance using outcomes. So spotting significance in data is, in my opinion, one of the more difficult skills to master as a researcher. Moving away from reporting on things that are interesting or satisfy curiosity and towards reporting on things that are actually going to create positive change is super important but not very easy. Insights are most significant when they can be attributed to the delivery of an outcome. Considering insights in isolation, untethered to an outcome, can result in products and services that deliver unintended consequences. So again, in the example I provided earlier, on the surface, it looked as though offering people the ability to adjust their risk appetite and investment decisions on the fly was a good idea that was desired by the customer. But when we consider it in the broader context of building financial literacy, the inverse might actually be true. To spot significance using outcomes really requires teams to adopt an outcomes-focused approach from day one and to create stakeholder alignment on those outcomes. 
There are many different frameworks that can be adopted. Personally, I find a theory of change, which describes the positive outcomes for business and customers, is really effective. It's best created at the beginning of a project, even though it feels the most uncomfortable time to do it because you know the least. If you have this outcomes framework at the beginning of the project, appreciating that it will evolve over time, it really helps us as researchers to spot significant moments that build evidence, either that we're going to deliver on that outcome or that we're really off-piste and we need to, um, we need to make changes. The second thing is to evaluate and prioritise insights against those outcomes. To do this, it's worth having that theory of change or that outcomes framework printed out on the wall where you're doing your synthesis so that it becomes much easier to spot significance and understand which insights should be reported back based on the outcomes we believe they will deliver. The last principle I wanted to share and one that I feel particularly passionate about is balancing empathy and entrepreneurialism. It's a bit of a mouthful, that word. I've spoken a lot about wellbeing outcomes today. One thing I want to be really clear about is that a business doesn't need to label itself as purpose-driven to be on the hook for delivering wellbeing outcomes. Wellbeing outcomes and profit do not contradict each other. Empathy without entrepreneurialism looks like well-meaning initiatives that never go live or rely on funding from other parts of the business that are shut down as soon as priorities change. Entrepreneurialism without empathy looks like solutions that generate revenue but don't generate well-being outcomes. And when these two things are kept separate, it's a recipe for disaster. As researchers, to deliver wellbeing outcomes, we need to define customer and business outcomes and build evidence that creates confidence in solutions that will deliver these positive outcomes. As researchers, I think for us, the writing's often on the wall. We've been to all the sessions. We've had the privileged view of seeing all the participants and all of the angles, but the same isn't true for our clients and stakeholders. Challenging people's predefined solutions can be super difficult and uncomfortable. I find an opportunity canvas is a really effective way of collecting the risks and benefits of ideas and being able to weigh up the trade-offs. In the example I gave earlier, if we allow people to easily change their superannuation profile, then we'll probably see an uplift in engagement metrics, which might be a good thing to observe. But when we also see people make uninformed decisions that lead to poor financial outcomes, is that the kind of trade-off that we want to make? Researchers have a really important role to play in weighing up those trade-offs and surfacing them to our stakeholders so that everyone's aligned and able to make sensible decisions about what to build based on evidence and outcomes. So just to wrap up, here are a few key takeaways and then I'm happy to answer any questions. Firstly, as researchers, we need to help stakeholders and teams understand why particular insights can't be ignored by presenting and prioritising them in the context of outcomes. Secondly, as researchers, lead the charge on designing your outcomes framework. Don't let the discomfort of not knowing all the answers on day one create inertia. Just get started and evolve it over time. Finally, give stakeholders a clear framework for identifying trade-offs using evidence. Discussing trade-offs will help teams to make informed decisions that lead to desirable outcomes. 
again, thanks for having me to share my thoughts today. And uh, feel free to ask any questions and reach out if you'd like to have a chat. Thanks, Laura. Pleasure. Great session. Um, we, I'll, I'll ask you to just uh, sort of check the um, Q&A afterwards um, for any questions. We haven't had any come through just yet, but if you uh, wouldn't mind just having a look, that would be great. Um, thank you. And I should I should mention uh, Laura's from Future Friendly and they're one of the um, uh, best outfits around that you will find doing this kind of work. They've um, been around for quite some time and delivering uh, consistently good work over a sustained period. So well worth taking a look at the work they're doing. And if you do get a chance over the years um, to work either with them or for them, I highly recommend you taking that up. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Steve.